Chapter Five of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Neefit and his family. Mr. Neefit was a breeches maker in Conduit Street of such repute that no hunting man could be said to go decently into the hunting field unless decorated by a garment made in Mr. Neefit's establishment. His manipulation of leather was something marvelous, and in latter years he had added to his original art, an art which had at first been perfect rather than comprehensive, an exquisite skill in cords, buckskins, and such like materials. When his trade was becoming prosperous, he had thoughts of degenerating into a tailor, adding largely to his premises and of compensating his pride by the prospects of great increase to his fortune. But an angel of glory had whispered to him to let well alone, and he was still able to boast that all his measurements had been confined to the legs of sportsmen. Instead of extending his business, he had simply extended his price, and had boldly clapped on an extra half-guinea to every pair that he supplied. The experiment was altogether successful, and when it was heard by the riding men of the city that Mr. Neefit's prices were undoubtedly higher than those of any other breeches-maker in London, and that he had refused to supply breeches for the grooms of a marquee because the marquee was not a hunting man, the riding men of the city flocked to him in such numbers that it became quite a common thing for them to give their orders in June and July so that they might not be disappointed when November came round. Mr. Neefit was a prosperous man, but he had his troubles. Now it was a great trouble to him that some sporting men would be so very slow in paying for the breeches in which they took pride. Mr. Neefit's fortune had not been rapid in early life. He had begun with a small capital and a small establishment, and even now his place of business was very limited in size. He had been clever enough to make profit even out of its smallness, and had contrived that it should be understood that the little back room in which men were measured was so diminutive because it did not suit his special business to welcome a crowd. It was his pride, he said, to wait upon hunting men, but with the garments of the world at large he wished to have no concern whatever. In the outer shop, looking into Conduit Street, there was a long counter on which goods were unrolled for inspection, and on which an artist, the solemnity of whose brow and whose rigid silence betokened the nature of his great employment, was always cutting out leather. This grave man was a German, and there was a rumor among young sportsmen that old Neefit paid this highly skilled operator six hundred pounds a year for his services. Nobody knew, as he did, how each morsel of leather would behave itself under the needle, or could come within two hairs' breadths of him in accuracy across the knee-pan. As for measuring, Mr. Neefit did that himself, almost always, to be measured by Mr. Neefit was as essential to perfection as to be cut out for by the German. 
There were rumors, indeed, that from certain classes of customers, Mr. Neefit and the great foreigner kept themselves personally aloof. It was believed that Mr. Neefit would not condescend to measure a retail tradesman. Latterly, indeed, there had arisen a doubt whether he would lay his august hand on a stockbroker's leg, though little Wallop, one of the young glories of Capel Court, swears that he is handled by him every year. "'Confound his impudence,' says Wallop. "'I'd like to see him sending a foreman to me. "'And as for cutting, do you think I don't know Bawa's and?' The name of the foreign artist is not exactly known, but it is pronounced as we have written it, and spelt in that fashion by sporting gentlemen when writing to each other. Our readers may be told in confidence that up to a very late date Mr. Neefit lived in the rooms over his shop. This is certainly not the thing for a prosperous tradesman to do. Indeed, if a tradesman be known not to have a private residence, he will hardly become prosperous. But Neefit had been a cautious man, until two years before the commencement of our story he had actually lived in Conduit Street, working hard, however, to keep his residence a deep secret from his customers at large. Now he was the proud possessor of a villa residence at Hendon, two miles out in the country, beyond the Swiss cottage, and all his customers knew that he was never to be found before 9.30 a.m. or after 5.15 p.m. As we have said, Mr. Neefit had his troubles, and one of his great troubles was our young friend Ralph Newton. Ralph Newton was a hunting man with a stud of horses, never less than four, and sometimes running up to seven and eight, always standing at the moonbeam at Barnfield. All men know that Barnfield is in the middle of the B.B. hunt, the two initials standing for those two sporting counties, Berkshire and Buckinghamshire. Now Mr. Neefit had a very large connection in the B.B., and though he never was on horseback in his life, subscribed twenty-five pounds a year to the pack. Mr. Ralph Newton had long favored him with this custom, but we are sorry to say Mr. Ralph Newton had become a thorn in the flesh to many a tradesman in these days. It was not that he never paid. He did pay something, but as he ordered more than he paid, the sum total against him was always an increasing figure. But then he was a most engaging, civil-spoken young man, whose order it was almost impossible to decline. It was known, moreover, that his prospects were so good. Nevertheless, it is not pleasant for a breeches-maker to see the second hundred pound accumulating on his books for leather breeches for one gentleman. What does he do with them? old Neefit would say to himself, but he didn't dare to ask any such question of Mr. Newton. It isn't for a tradesman to complain that a gentleman consumes too many of his articles. Things, however, went so far that Mr. Neefit found it to be incumbent on him to make special inquiry about those prospects. Things had gone very far indeed, for Ralph Newton appeared one summer evening at the villa at Hendon and absolutely asked the breeches-maker to lend him a hundred pounds. 
Before he left, he had taken tea with Mr. and Mrs. and Miss Neefit on the lawn, and had received almost a promise that the loan should be forthcoming if he would call in Conduit Street on the following morning. That had been early in May, and Ralph Newton had called, and though there had been difficulties, he had received the money before three days had passed. Mr. Neefit was a stout little man with a bald head and somewhat protrusive eyes, whose manners to his customers contained a combination of dictatorial assurance and subservience, which he had found to be efficacious in his peculiar business. On general subjects he would rub his hands and bow his head and agree most humbly with every word that was uttered. In the same day he would be a radical and a conservative, devoted to the church and a scoffer at Parsons, animated on behalf of staghounds and a loud censurer of aught in the way of hunting other than the orthodox fox. On all trivial outside subjects he considered it to be his duty as a tradesman simply to ingratiate himself, but in a matter of breeches he gave way to no man, let his custom be what it might. He knew his business, and was not going to be told by any man whether the garments which he made did or did not fit. It was the duty of a gentleman to come, and allow him to see them on while still in a half-embryo condition. If gentlemen did their duty, he was sure that he could do his. He would take back anything that was not approved without a murmur, but after that he must decline further transactions. It was, moreover, quite understood that to complain of his materials was so to insult him that he would condescend to make no civil reply. An elderly gentleman from Essex once told him that his buttons were given to breaking. "'If you have your breeches washed by an old woman in the country,' said Mr. Neefit very slowly, looking into the elderly gentleman's face, "'and then run through the mangle, the buttons will break.' The elderly gentleman never dared even to enter the shop again. Mr. Neefit was perhaps somewhat over-imperious in matters relating to his own business, but in excuse for him it must be stated that he was in truth an honest tradesman. He was honest at least so far that he did his breeches as well as he knew how. He had made up his mind that the best way to make his fortune was to send out good articles, and he did his best. Whether or no he was honest in adding on that additional half-guinea to the price, because he found that the men with whom he dealt were fools enough to be attracted by a high price, shall be left to advanced moralists to decide. In that universal agreement with diverse opinions, there must, we fear, have been something of dishonesty. But he made the best of breeches, put no shoddy or cheap stitching into them, and was upon the whole an honest tradesman. From 9.30 to 5.15 were Mr. Neefit's hours, but it had come to be understood by those who knew the establishment well that from half-past twelve to half-past one the master was always absent. The young man who sat at the high desk and seemed to spend all his time in contemplating the bad debts in the ledger would tell gentlemen who called up to one 
that Mr. Neefit was in the city. After one, it was always said that Mr. Neefit was out lunching at the restaurant. The truth was that Mr. Neefit always dined in the middle of the day at a public house round the corner, having a chop and a follow-chop, a pint of beer, a penny newspaper, and a pipe. When the villa at Hendon had been first taken, Mrs. Neefit had started late dinners, but that vigilant and intelligent lady had soon perceived that this simply meant, in regard to her husband, two dinners a day, and apoplexy. She had, therefore, returned to the old ways, an early dinner for herself and daughter, and a little bit of supper at night. Now, one day in June, that very Saturday on which Sir Thomas Underwood had brought his niece home to Fulham, the day after that wicked kiss on the lawn at Fulham, Ralph Newton walked into Neefit's shop during the hour of Mr. Neefit's absence and ordered three pair of breeches. Herr Hawa, the cutter, who never left his board during the day for more than five minutes at a time, remained, as was his custom, mute and apparently inattentive. But the foreman came down from his perch and took the order. Mr. Neefit was out, unfortunately, in the city. Ralph Newton remarked that his measure was not in the least altered, gave his order, and went out. Three pair? Leather? asked Mr. Neefit, when he returned, raising his eyebrows, and clearly showing that the moment was not one of unmixed delight. Two leather, one cord, said the foreman. He had four pair last year, said Mr. Neefit in a tone so piteous that it might almost have been thought he was going to weep. One hundred and eighty-nine pounds and fourteen shillings and ninepence was the Christmas figure, said the foreman, turning back to a leaf in the book which he found without any difficulty. Mr. Neefit took himself to the examination of certain completed articles which adorned his shop, as though he were anxious to banish from his mind so painful a subject. "'Is he to have him, Mr. Neefit?' asked the foreman. The master was still silent, and still fingered the materials, which his very soul loved. "'He must have a matter of twenty pair by him, unless he sells em, said the suspicious foreman. "'He don't sell em," said Mr. Neefit. "'He ain't one of that sort. You can put him in hand, Waddle.' "'Very well, Mr. Neefit. I only thought I'd mention it.' It looked queer-like, his coming, just when you was out. I don't see anything queer in it. He ain't one of that sort. Do you go on. Mr. Waddle knew nothing of the hundred pounds, nor did he know that Ralph Newton had twice drank tea at Hendon. On both occasions Mrs. Neefit had declared that if ever she saw a gentleman, Mr. Newton was a gentleman, and Miss Neefit, though her words had been very few, had evidently approved of Mr. Newton's manners. Now Miss Neefit was a beauty, and an heiress. Mr. Waddle had hardly been silenced, and had just retired with melancholy diligence amidst the records of unsatisfactory commercial transactions, before Ralph Newton again entered the shop. He shook hands with Mr. Neefit, as was the practice with many favorite customers, and immediately went to work in regard to his new order as though every Christmas and every midsummer saw an account closed on his behalf in Mr. Neefit's books. 
I did say just now when I found you were out that last year's lines would do, but it may be, you know, that I'm running a little to flesh. We can't be too particular, Mr. Newton, said the master. It's all for your sake that I come, said the young sportsman, walking into the little room, while Mr. Neefit followed with his scraps of paper and tapes, and Waddle followed him to write down the figures. I don't care much how they look myself. Oh, Mr. Newton, I shouldn't like em to wrinkle inside the knee, you know. That isn't likely with us, I hope, Mr. Newton. And I own I do like to be able to get into them. We don't give much trouble in that way, Mr. Newton. But the fact is, I have such trust in you, and the silent gentleman out there, that I believe you would fit me for the next twenty years, though you were never to see me. Oh, thank you, Mr. Newton. Two, four, and one-eighth, Waddle. I think Mr. Newton is a little stouter, but perhaps you may work that off before November, Mr. Newton. Thank you, Mr. Newton. I think that'll do. You'll find we shan't be far wrong. Three pair, Mr. Newton? Yes, I think three pair will see me through next season. I don't suppose I shall hunt above four days, and I have some by me. Some by him? There must be drawers full of them, presses full of them, chests full of them. Waddle, the melancholy and suspicious Waddle, was sure that their customer was playing them false raising money on the garments as soon as they were sent to him. But he did not dare to say anything of this after the snubbing which he had already received. If old Neefit chose to be done by a dishonest young man, it was nothing to him. But in truth Waddle did not understand men as well as did his master, and then he knew nothing of his master's ambitious hopes. The bishops came out very strong last night, didn't they, said Ralph, in the outer shop. Very strong indeed, Mr. Newton, very strong. But after all, they're nothing but a pack of old women. That's about what they are, Mr. Newton. Not but what we must have a church, I suppose. We should do very badly without a church, Mr. Newton. At least that is my opinion. Then Ralph left the shop and the breeches-maker bowed him out the door. Fifty thousand pounds, said Ralph Newton to himself as he walked into Bond Street and down to his club. When a man is really rich, rumor always increases his money, and rumor had doubled the fortune which Mr. Neefit had already amassed. That means two thousand a year, and the girl herself is so pretty that upon my honor I don't know which is the prettier, she or Clary. That fancy old Neefit for one's father-in-law. Everybody is doing it now, but I don't think I'd do it for ten times the money. The fact is, one has got to get used to these things, and I'm not used to it yet. I soon shall be, or to something worse. Such was the nature of Ralph's thoughts as he walked away from Mr. Neefit's house to his club. Mr. Neefit, as he went home, had his speculations also. In making breeches he was perfect, and in putting together money he had proved himself to be an adept. But as to the use of his money, he was quite as much at a loss as he would have been had he tried to wear the garments for which he measured his customers so successfully. 
he had almost realized the truth that from that money he himself could extract for himself but little delight beyond that which arose simply from the possession. Holidays destroyed him. Even a day at home, at Hendon, other than Sunday, was almost more than he could endure. The fruition of life to him was in the completing of breeches, and its charm in a mutton-chop and a pipe of tobacco. He had tried idleness, and was wise enough to know, almost at the first trial, that idleness would not suit him. He had made one mistake in life which was irreparable. He had migrated from Conduit Street to a cold, comfortless box of a house at a place in which, in order that his respectability might be maintained, he was not allowed to show his face in a public house. This was very bad, but he would not make bad worse by giving up so much of Conduit Street as was still left to him. He would stick to the shop. But what would he do with his money? He had but one daughter. Thinking of this day after day, month after month, year after year, he came slowly to the conclusion that it was his duty to make his daughter a lady. He must find some gentleman who would marry her, and then would give that gentleman all his money, knowing as he did so that the gentleman would probably never speak to him again. And to this conclusion he came with no bitterness of feeling, with no sense of disappointment that to such an end must come the exertions of his laborious and successful life. There was nothing else for him to do. He could not be a gentleman himself. It seemed to be no more within his reach than it is for the gentleman to be an angel. He did not desire it. He would not have enjoyed it. He had that sort of sense which makes a man know so thoroughly his own limits that he has no regret at not passing them. But yet in his eyes a gentleman was so grand a thing, he being so infinitely superior to himself, that loving his daughter above anything else he did think that he could die happy if he could see her married into a station so exalted. There was a humility in this as regarded himself, and an affection for his child, which were admirable. The reader will think that he might at any rate have done better than to pitch upon such a one as Ralph Newton, but then the reader hardly knows Ralph Newton as yet, and cannot at all realize the difficulty which poor Mr. Neefit experienced in coming across any gentleman in such a fashion as to be able to commence his operations. It is hardly open to a tradesman to ask a young man home to his house when measuring him from the hip to the knee. Neefit had heard of many cases in which gentlemen of money had married the daughters of commercial men, and he knew that the thing was to be done. Money which, spent in other directions, seemed to be nearly useless to him, might be used beneficially in this way. But how was he to set about it? Polly Neefit was as pretty a girl as you shall wish to see, and he knew that she was pretty. But if he didn't take care, the good-looking young gas-fitter next door to him, down at Hendon, would have his Polly before he knew where he was. Or worse still, as he thought, there was that mad son of his old friend Moggs, the bootmaker. Ontario Moggs, as he had been christened by a Canadian godfather, with whom Polly had condescended already to hold something of a flirtation. 
He could not advertise for a genteel lover. What could he do? Then Ralph Newton made his way down to the Hendon Villa, asking for money. What should have induced Mr. Newton to come to him for money he could not guess, but he did know that of all the young men who came into his back shop to be measured, there was no one whose looks and manners and cheery voice had created so strong a feeling of pleasantness as had those of Mr. Ralph Newton. Mr. Neefit could not analyze it, but there was a kind of sunshine about the young man which would have made him very unwilling to press hard for payment or to stop the supply of breeches. He had taken a liking to Ralph and found himself thinking about the young man in his journeys between Hendon and Conduit Street. Was not this the sort of gentleman that would suit his daughter? Neefit wanted no one to tell him that Ralph Newton was a gentleman, what he meant by a gentleman, and that Wallop the stockbroker was not. Wallop the stockbroker spoke of himself as though he was a very fine fellow indeed. But to the thinking of Mr. Neefit, Ontario Moggs was more like a gentleman than Mr. Wallop. He had feared much as to his daughter, both in reference to the handsome gas-fitter and to Ontario Moggs, but since that second tea-drinking he had hoped that his daughter's eyes were opened. He had made inquiry about Ralph Newton, and had found that the young man was undoubtedly heir to a handsome estate in Hampshire, a place called Newton Priory, with a parish of Newton Peel, and lodges, and a gamekeeper, and a park. He knew of old that Ralph's uncle would have nothing to do with his nephew's debts, but he learned now as a certainty that the uncle could not disinherit his nephew. And the debts did not seem to be very high, and Ralph had come into some property from his father. Upon the whole, though, of course, there must be a sacrifice of money at first. Neefit thought that he saw his way. Mr. Newton, too, had been very civil to his girl, not simply making to her foolish, flattering little speeches, but treating her, so thought Neefit, exactly as a high-bred gentleman would treat the lady of his thoughts. It was a high ambition, but Neefit thought that there might possibly be a way to success. Mrs. Neefit had been a good helpmeet to her husband, having worked hard for him when hard work on her part was needed, but was not altogether so happy in her disposition as her lord. He desired to shine only in his daughter, and as a tradesman. She was troubled by the more difficult ambition of desiring to shine in her own person. It was she who had insisted on migrating to Hendon, and who had demanded also the establishment of a one-horse carriage. The one-horse carriage was no delight to Neefit, and hardly gave satisfaction to his wife after the first three months. To be driven along the same roads day after day at the rate of six miles an hour, though it may afford fresh air, is not an exciting amusement. Mrs. Neefit was not given to reading, and was debarred by a sense of propriety from making those beefsteak puddings for which, within her own small household, she had once been so famous. Hendon she found dull, and though Hendon had been her own choice, she could not keep herself from complaining of its dullness to her husband. But she always told him that the fault lay with him. He ought to content himself with going to town four times a week, 
and take a six weeks holiday in the autumn that was the recognized mode of life with gentlemen who had made their fortunes in trade then she tried to make him believe that constant seclusion in conduit street was bad for his liver but above all things he ought to give up measuring his own customers with his own hands none of their genteel neighbors would call upon his wife and daughter as long as he did that but mr neefit was a man within whose bosom gallantry had its limits he had given his wife a house at hendon and was contented to take that odious journey backwards and forwards six days a week to oblige her but when she told him not to measure his own customers he cut up rough as polly called it you be blowed he said to the wife of his bosom he had said it before and she bore it with majestic equanimity polly neefit was as we have said as pretty a girl as you shall wish to see in spite of a nose that was almost a pug nose and a mouth that was a little large i think however that she was perhaps prettier at seventeen when she would run up and down conduit street on messages for her father who was not as yet aware that she had ceased to be a child than she became afterwards at hendon when she was twenty in those early days her glossy black hair hung down her face in curls now she had a thing on the back of her head and her hair was manoeuvred after the usual fashion but her laughing dark eyes were full of good humour and looked as though they could be filled also with feeling her complexion was perfect perfect at twenty though from its nature it would be apt to be fixed and perhaps rough and coarse at thirty but at twenty it was perfect it was as is the colour of a half-blown rose in which the variations from white to pink and almost to red are so gradual and soft as to have no limits and then with her there was a charm beyond that of the rose for the hues would ever be changing as she spoke or laughed or became serious or sat thoughtless or pored over her novel the tint of her cheek and neck would change as this or that emotion be it ever so slight played upon the current of her blood she was tall and well made perhaps almost robust she was good-humoured somewhat given to frank coquetry and certainly fond of young men she had sense enough not to despise her father and was good enough to endeavour to make life bearable to her mother she was clever too in her way and could say sprightly things she read novels and loved the love story she meant herself to have a grand passion some day but did not quite sympathize with her father's views about gentlemen not that these views were discussed between them but each was gradually learning the mind of the other it was very pleasant to polly neefit to waltz with a good-looking gasfitter and indeed to waltz with any man was a pleasure to polly for dancing was her paradise upon earth and she liked talking to ontario moggs who was a clever man and had a great deal to say about many things she believed that ontario moggs was dying for her love but she had by no means made up her mind that Ontario was to be the hero of the grand passion. The great passion was quite a necessity for her. She must have her romance. 
but Polly was aware that a great passion ought to be made to lead to a snug house, half a dozen children, and a proper church-going roast-mutton, duty-doing manner of life. Now Ontario Moggs had very wild ideas. As for the gas-fitter, he danced well and was good-looking, but he had very little to say for himself. When Polly saw Ralph Newton, especially when he sat out on the lawn with him and smoked cigars on his second coming, she thought him very nice. She had no idea of being patronized by anyone, and she was afraid of persons whom she called stuck-up ladies and gentlemen. But Mr. Newton had not patronized her, and she had acknowledged that he was very nice. Such as she was, she was the idol of her father's heart and the apple of his eye. If she had asked him to give up measuring, he might have yielded. But then his Polly was too wise for that. We must say a word more of Mrs. Neefit, and then we shall hope that our readers will know the family. She had been the daughter of a breeches-maker to whom Neefit had originally been apprenticed, and therefore regarded herself as the maker of the family. But in truth the business, such as it was now in its glory, had been constructed by her husband, and her own fortune had been very small. She was a stout, round-faced, healthy, meaningless woman, in whom ill-humor would not have developed itself unless idleness, that root of all evil, had fallen in her way. As it was, in the present condition of their lives, she did inflict much discomfort on poor Mr. Neefit. Had he been ill, she would have nursed him with all her care. Had he died, she would have mourned for him as the best of husbands. Had he been three parts ruined in trade, she would have gone back to Conduit Street and made beefsteak puddings almost without a murmur. She was very anxious for his Sunday dinner, and would have considered it to be a sin to be without a bit of something nice for his supper. She took care that he always wore flannel, and would never let him stay away from church, lest worse should befall him. But she couldn't let him be quiet. What else was there left for her to do but to nag him? Polly, who was with her during the long hours of the day, would not be nagged. Now, Mamma, she'd say with a tone of authority that almost overcame Mamma, and if Mamma was very cross, Polly would escape. But during the long hours of the night, the breeches maker could not escape, and in minor matters the authority lay with her. It was only when great matters were touched that Mr. Neefit would rise in his wrath and desire his wife to be blowed. No doubt Mrs. Neefit was an unhappy woman, more unfortunate as a woman than was her husband as a man. The villa at Hendon had been heavy upon him, but it had been doubly heavy upon her. He could employ himself. The legs of his customers to him were a blessed resource but she had no resource. The indefinite idea which she had formed of what life would be in a pretty villa residence had been proved to be utterly fallacious, though she had never acknowledged the fallacy either to husband or daughter. That one-horsed carriage in which she was dragged about was almost as odious to her as her own drawing-room. That had become so horrible that it was rarely used but even the dining-room was very bad. 
What would she do there, poor woman? What was there left for her to do at all in this world, except to nag at her husband? Nevertheless, all who knew anything about the Neefits said that they were very respectable people, and had done very well in the world. End of chapter 5 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina